Well, tonight, originally, I was going to go through um, an introduction of biblical counseling, but knowing that there's a lot of gatherings tonight and a lot going on tonight, um, we pushed that back uh, one week. And so I thought for tonight, um, what I wanted to do was really kind of do an overview, a walkthrough um, of the Old Testament. I mean, I've done this in the form of a sermon, and, um, and at various times I've taught through various parts of the Old Testament. But I think for, um, for a lot of us that may not feel that comfortable with the Old Testament, just, just kind of walk through some of the major books and, and get an understanding of um, the summary of each book, why it's there, and to help give us some scope um, of the Old Testament. It's amazing that the more you understand the Old Testament, um, the more you're going to understand the New Testament. Um, you can understand the New Testament on its own, um, but when you understand the Old Testament, the, the New Testament becomes so much richer, um, so much sharper. And uh, in fact, um, you know, I know, I know Mike Shelton, you, you've got a heart for Israel, you know, Jews um, that uh, have been saved and, and whatnot. And it's um, interesting what well, one of my seminary professors told me that if you um, ever meet someone who was raised as a Jew and then converted to becoming a Christian, um, at the time of their conversion, they really start off almost five years ahead of most other Christians. And really the reason being because they have so much background of the Old Testament that when they read the New Testament, they, they pull so much more out of it immediately. You know, they, they see all the imagery that, that traces back in all the ways. They've been convinced of all the ways that all their, the Old Testament really points towards Jesus Christ being the Messiah. So indeed, it is um, extremely rich. And, and I want, you know, I, I really want uh, as much as many of us here at this church to be as comfortable as possible um, understanding and being able to navigate the Old Testament and, and uh, having a good grasp of it. So let's go ahead and um, take a look at the, um, at the Old Testament. And if you were to look at the table of contents, you'll notice that um, and count through the books, there are um, 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, 27 New Testament, 39 of the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament, in terms of page count, if you were to do like page count, it's like 75% of the Bible. Yes. Um, so it's a significant chunk of the Bible. Um, now, the Old Testament is also mostly um, narrative. Now, what do I mean by narrative? Well, it's, it's mostly describing the things that happened rather than prescribing what a person is supposed to do. Um, so, for instance, when we, in the New Testament, when we read through the book of Acts, you know, you remember um, last Sunday I did that kind of walkthrough of many verses of Acts, and we went through it pretty quickly, and, and we were able to do that because it's narrative. It's describing what's happening. It's, it's like action-packed. It's, it's very um, narrative-oriented. It's telling a story. But when we go through a letter like Ephesians, it's not narrative. This is, um, this is a direct letter from Paul um, to the Ephesian church that's full of commandments, full of theological truths. And so we have to kind of approach it differently. Well, the Old Testament is, is mostly narrative. And um, when we think about the Old Testament, um, really the foundation, the absolute foundation of the entire Old Testament is the first five books. It's what we call, what the Jews call the Torah. Um, we call it the Pentateuch. Um, you can call it the Law of Moses, the Books of Moses. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, those are um, the five books of, of Moses that really lays out the law. And, um, and quite honestly, if, if, um, if you did not have an understanding of the first five books, um, the rest of the Old Testament really does not make a whole lot of sense. It's very difficult to make sense out of the rest of the Old Testament. Um, because even as you go to the final book of the Old Testament, if you were to go to Malachi, um, at the very end of the very last book of the Old Testament, what does Malachi say? Remember the law of Moses. 
Um, and, uh, and so even, even the final book, he's, he's looking back at the law and saying, remember the law that was, that was given to you. Everything that happens to Israel throughout their history, the, the, the blessings and the curses, it all points back to the law. Their disobedience, their obedience, it all points back to the law. The reason why they got kicked out of the promised land, that points back to the law. Um, and then being restored, that points back to the law. And ultimately, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ points back to the law. Um, and uh, to put it another way, the law points forward to Christ. Um, because the law, the law points forward to Christ. Christ um, is, is the perfect fulfillment of the law, right? We hear that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus Christ said, do not think I came to abolish, but rather fulfill. Um, every jot, every tittle will be fulfilled from, from the book of the law. So he was the perfect fulfillment um, of the law. And uh, the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says that the law served as a tutor, um, as kind of a custodian that was meant to lead us to the gospel, lead us uh, to Christ. So the first five books are absolutely foundational um, to, to, to the entire Old Testament. And we look at the first five books. We start with the book of Genesis. And um, if uh, really Genesis, I would break it out into two major sections. What, what do you think those two major sections are? Any guesses? What, what, from what chapters to what chapters? Uh, what would, uh, if you were to, someone told you to break Genesis into two major parts, well, how would you divide it? Um, that, that's one way of um, doing it. I, I think um, when we look at it from the history of Israel, though, um, you, you would um, divide it from the first 11 chapters being prior to Abraham, right? And then starting from chapter 12, you have the call of Abraham. And then really the rest of Genesis is about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? Um, and this, this is what we call the patriarchs of the faith. Um, so even today, um, Israel, and even in the days of, of Jesus Christ when he came, they understood God to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, why those three specifically? Because those were the first three um, before, the, um, before the Israelites ended up in Egypt. Um, so really the book of Genesis, when you think about it, the, you have the first 11 chapters, um, which is really um, the, the history of the world prior to the calling of Abraham. This is the pre-patriarchal history, if you will from creation all the way um, up to the time of Abraham, and then from uh, chapter 12 is the call of Abraham, right? And then um, Abraham has a son. Well, he has many sons, but the chosen one is Isaac. Isaac has multiple sons. His chosen one is Jacob. Um, Jacob ends up getting renamed to what? Israel. 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 And uh, he has 12 sons, and those are 12 sons are referred to as the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see that um, really in the life of Joseph, Joseph being the favored son, and, um, and he ended up going down to Egypt. And um, Joseph going to Egypt, how did Joseph end up in Egypt? He sold. Yeah, he was sold into slavery. Um, and that was really a fulfillment of what God told Abraham. Because when he called Abraham, he said that, hey, your descendants are, are going to be slaves in a land not their own. And they're going, to serve, they're going to serve as slaves there for 400 years. That's in Genesis 15. So really what happens to Joseph ends up being a fulfillment of something that he told, he told Abraham a couple of generations back. Um, and so they end up in, in Egypt. And from the time in Egypt, at the end of, from the time of that Exodus, um, I'm sorry, Genesis ends to the time that Exodus begins, really the start of Exodus, that's the life of Moses, right? Moses as a child. But from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, that's over 400 years. Yeah. So at the end of Genesis, you have you have Joseph and you have the, the and Jacob and, and all of the sons of Israel. They all come into um, Egypt. 
Um, they're served well. They get to settle in this land called Goshen where they multiply. They're, they're actually very fruitful. They're, they're, they multiply. That too is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So one of the reasons why they brought them to Egypt was that during the years of famine, they would be brought to a place where they could multiply and become many. And, uh, and then in the beginning of the book of Exodus, now you have really the, the start of the life of, um, of Moses. Um, and uh, you, you see the accounts of Moses as, as a child and, and really how um, Egypt, which initially protected the Israelites, now we're turning against them and oppressing them. And uh, anyone? Yeah. Doesn't it also explain that the situation with the pharaohs had shifted? And there was yeah, there, were, there was, there was change in kingship. Know. Right, right. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't know, they didn't have regard for um, Joseph, uh, you know, how they got there and whatnot. And, and really, I, I think they ended up being driven by fear. Now, they were driven by fear because the Israelites were, were very fruitful. I mean, they were multiplying greatly. Yeah, Mike. You know, uh, I think it's important at that point to understand that there were 70 people that went to Egypt. Yeah, 70 initially, yeah. There was yeah. a family yeah. that went to that's Egypt, right. but it was a nation that came out of Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and so when um, when the scriptures say that um, that you know they were made fruitful and, and they multiplied greatly, it started off with seventy, and from there they just exploded. Um, Clark, do we know what that time period is from the seventy till they till they left? Uh, well, from the time that Moses was born, um, we would say that's probably around fourteen fifty BC. Um, so if we work backwards, the end of Genesis would have been around eighteen fifty nineteen hundred BC, something like that. Yeah. What's that? I was actually, I'm sorry, I was trying to actually get the, how many years it took them to multiply that kind of Oh, how many years? Well, it would have been those four, 400 years. It's the 400, it's the 400 years. Yeah, so for, from the time that, uh, yeah, from, from the, at the end of um, Genesis to, yeah, it was, it was um, 70 people when they first got into Egypt. And, uh, and then 430 years later, you get to the days of Moses. Um, so really the multiplication happened over those four generations. Um, and so God used that, that land to multiply them. And what's interesting, too, is that God said that they would be enslaved. And why were they enslaved? Well, they were enslaved because the new king that did not know Joseph and did not know those prior relationships, he was absolutely terrified um, that, uh, that, hey, this nation is becoming bigger and greater than, than the Egyptians. And, and the more he tried to oppress them, the more they grew. You know, so it's, it's interesting that, um, that God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in growing that people was exactly um, the reason why they ended up getting oppressed. And, uh, and so then Moses ends up um, getting raised up. Um, and, and Moses initially, for the first 40 years he lived in Egypt, he, he wasn't yet their kind of their deliverer. He wasn't their prophet. Um, after 40 years, he ended up being a refugee. Um, right. Because he he saw one of his fellow brothers, uh, you know, being mistreated and uh, he ended up uh, killing that that slave driver. Um, and then he ended up fleeing for his life. So Moses life can be broken out into um, uh, three 40 year periods. The first 40 years he was in Egypt um, and then he left after he killed that uh, slave driver. And then the next 40 years he spends it in Midian um, away, you know, where he's he becomes a shepherd and. And, and he's, you know, in fact, he, he's really kind of tending the, the flock when that burning bush incident happens. So that's like another 40 years. So by the time he sees that burning bush incident, he's 80 years old. And, uh, and God is telling, telling him, go back into Egypt and, uh, and we're going to deliver your people. And so that, that's the story of Exodus. It's called Exodus. Exodus means literally, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a leaving, uh, people that are uh, migrating out. Um, so Exodus um, really describes drawing out the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's that deliverance. It's the ten plagues, right? It's the parting of the Red Sea. 
Um, and, and it's also the um, it's also the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, now we say Ten Commandments. That was really the Ten Commandments that served as an introduction to the entire law. So the Ten Commandments is not the entire law. The entire law is is described over the course of you know from that point in Exodus uh, through Leviticus and into Deuteronomy. Then it gets restated in, in I'm sorry in in um, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then it gets restated in Deuteronomy. Um, so. And we think about this in terms of the history of the people. Here's what um, God said to Abraham. Look, they're going to be slaves in a land that's not their own, right? Um, I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to make them my people. I'm going to give them my law. And then they're going to go and dwell in the land forever. That's initially how it's presented. That's, that's initially the, the expectation. All right. But as, um, as God is giving that law from the book of Exodus, starting with the Ten Commandments, you know, he, he tells him, look, I'm going to give you a new covenant. This is a covenant between you and I. And um, as long as you obey it, you're going to be blessed. Right. And the expect and they, they fully expect that they're going to obey it. Right. And from the very beginning, they're like, everything you say, we will do everything you say, we will do. And so when, when you think about um, what the I say original plan, I mean, obviously, God knew all along what he was going to do. But the original plan was, look, we're going to deliver you from the land. We're going to give you the law. You go to the promised land. And from there, you glorify God from the promised land. That's it. That's it. You glorify God from the promised land. Um, but there are multiple bumps along the way. Um, first, they go into the promised land and they don't want to enter. Um, and, and by the way, so I mean, that in, in Exodus, they get delivered from, from Egypt. And um, the really the second half of the book of Exodus is about the building of the tabernacle. All right. So, I mean, the, um, the Israelites, now that they've come out of Egypt, God says, okay, um, you're going to worship me. You're going to worship me. And, and here's, here's the structure that you're going to create where I'm going to be at, that you're going to worship me at. And that's the tabernacle. It's really a tent that will travel around with the Israelites. So that's really at the end of the book of Exodus. And at the very end of Exodus, they finish it and the glory of God comes and fills that tabernacle. And then you get into Leviticus. That's the third book. Leviticus is all about the sacrifices the feasts that they're to observe, um, the additional laws that they're to observe. Um, it, um, it details how, you know, the, um, the, you know, that tabernacle was kind of um, consecrated and, and um, how the two sons of Aaron were consumed by fire, um, you know, when they, when they lifted up strange fire to, to God. You know, so, so God was showing that he is to be treated as holy. He is to be obeyed um, down to the details in terms of what he says. And then when you get into the book of Numbers, that's when they get to the promised land the first time. In the book of Numbers, yes. I think when um, you're reading Leviticus, it would become so detailed. Yeah. One would ask, why do we need to concern ourselves with this? Yeah. All these sacrifices. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Specific numbers and how exact they are. Yeah. But that's the way how they had to live and worship God. <coughs> we're free from that now. And yeah. If we still have to do those sacrifices now, how many of us can actually live up to that? You know what I mean? Right, so, right. I think... Because I had trouble getting through Leviticus. A lot. You know, I tell you what. The, the read the Bible in a year plan, most people die in Leviticus. They get sacrificed with, along with all the animals in Leviticus. It's a challenging because it's just like, wow. But when, but when you look at it from the perspective, like, that's how the Israelites were required right. to live this way. Yeah. And if they do just one thing off, they are being disobedient. Yeah, yeah. You know, my um, my seminary professor who taught me the Old Testament, he, he told this story about how there was a, one day he was at the butcher shop, you know, getting meat and, and he's watching the butcher, you know, carve up this meat and stuff like that. And he had this random thought that if this was in the Old Testament days and, and he was an Old Testament Jew, 
um, he'd probably be taking very close notes as to how those animals are being cut and handled and whatnot. Um, for the Israelite, I mean, when we think about those five books, the, the book that would have mattered the most to the Israelite would have been Leviticus. Because they're like, I have to follow everything that's in Leviticus. That, that's to the detail. They would want to know everything to the detail and, uh, and follow that very closely. And, uh, and that book, it's called Leviticus um, in, in, because of the Levi priests. The priests were from the tribe of Levi. That was one of the sons of, of Jacob, one of the tribes of Israel. Um, but uh, really, uh, my professor made the point that it really should be called Israeliticus uh, <laughs> um, because this really pertained to all of, the, all of Israel and what they were to do um, when, when they came to worship God. And, you know, if you, if you, when you look at the beginning of Israel, uh, to, that beginning of the book of Leviticus, I mean, God says, when you come to me and, and, and worship me, this is how you're supposed to do it. And he starts to lay out the sacrifices. So, I mean, there's automatically an assumption that you're going to come worship and this is how you're going to do it with sacrifices. And those sacrifices was to be a reminder um, all the time that there was a separation uh, between them and God, that there is blood. There's a blood sacrifice that's required for them to be in the presence of God. Um, that was always to be in their mind. Um, so, yeah, no, that's a good point. And then when you get beyond Leviticus and into Numbers, Numbers, um, it's called Numbers because before um, before they enter the Promised Land the first time, before they go to the Promised Land the first time, Moses takes a census of all the tribes. All right. And, uh, and then, they, and, and then uh, they were supposed to go into the Promised Land, conquer it, and then dwell there forever. Um, but that first time they didn't. What happened? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they saw the giants of the land. They, they spied out the land. Let's send spies into the land. The children of Anak. Yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. The Anakim, is that what? Yeah, yeah. So they went into the land, spied out the land, um, and then they came back, said, man, the, the land is flowing with milk and honey just as God promised, but man, the people there are fierce. I mean, these are ferocious looking people. Um, and, and there were only two of them that said, no, God promised it to us. Let's just go and take it. And that was Joshua and Caleb, right? So, I, and that's why, you know, a lot of times you meet uh, brothers or twins are often named Joshua and Caleb. And that, that comes from um, that book. So those are the only two that, that believed. And uh, because everyone else was afraid, um, God, um, God punished them. And, uh, and he punished them with 40 years of what we call wandering through the wilderness. We say wandering, it's not really wandering. God told them all the time exactly where to go. They were going exactly where God was directing them, but they were staying in the wilderness. They were not going into the promised land. Now, why would they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Um, God would end up judging that entire first generation, um, wiping out that first generation, with the exception of people like Moses, Joshua, and, uh, and Joshua, I mean, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, and, uh, and, and a few other leaders. But um, for the most part, that first generation was wiped out, and a second generation had to be raised up. Um, and a second generation was raised up. And then when they went back into the promised land, Moses takes another census. Uh, and so when you take, compare the two census, you know, between the first time and the second time, the numbers are, are pretty, pretty close. And so it goes to show that even when the first generation is wiped out, which from a human perspective looks like, wow, this is an impossible situation. How are we going to take the promised land now? We've just wiped out our entire first generation. You know, and it's going to take us a long, long time to be able to recover and get back to that point. Well, second generation gets raised up, and when they take a census, it's basically the same numbers. And it uh, shows that God was sovereign. We're going to raise up a second generation, and we're going to go back at it. And so then they go back at it, and the second time they go into the promised land, Moses, um, Moses having um, been judged by God because he struck a rock out of anger, 
you know, when the people were asking for water. That's the waters at Meribah, right? Uh, so he, yeah, you know, and, and, and it sounds, it looks harsh. You look at that and you're like, wow, Moses was such a faithful servant during those 40 years in the wilderness. Um, you know, he strikes a rock one time, gets angry, and, and then he gets judged. Um, well, I mean, it just goes to show that um, God used Moses as an example that he demands perfection. You know, and Jesus, when Jesus comes, he would be the greater Moses. You know, he, he would be greater than Moses. Um, but anyway, they get to the promised land the second time. And now we got the second generation. And so what does Moses do? Moses wants to recite to them all that has happened. Now, a lot of them, they lived through it because they were, they were children. They, were below, they would have been below the age of um, 18, I believe, um, when they left um, Egypt. So a lot of them um, saw what happened, but now they're getting the entire law read back to them, their entire history read back to them, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, um, it's called Deuteronomy. It, it's like a second reading of the law. It's a second teaching of the law to that generation. And Moses is basically saying, look, when you get into the promised land, don't forget to obey the Mosaic law. Don't forget to obey the law that's been given to us to, to uh, abide by the commandment and you will be blessed. Um, so that, that's um, what Deuteronomy is all about. And then Moses, um, at the end of Deuteronomy, he's killed. Um, he's killed by God and, and there's a successor. Who's the successor? Yeah, it's Joshua. It's Joshua. Um, so then you get past the first five books of the Old Testament. So those are the five books. And, and that's really the storyline. Um, at the end of the fifth book, they're, they're about to conquer the promised land. Um, and so now Joshua is the book that details the conquering of that promised land. You know, Joshua takes over for Moses and, uh, and he leads them across the Jordan um, into the promised land. And you have um, really a record of the events of, of the conquest um, of the promised land. But what, what you'll find in, in Joshua is that um, they were not completely obedient to God to completely clear the land of all of its inhabitants. Now, the, the, the biggest... Um, uh, I guess, challenge of Joshua is that people will say that Joshua um, is a book about genocide. You know, and this is what happens when we take modern day terms and try to import them back into history and say, well, they're guilty of this and they're guilty of that. Uh, well, the people in that land, and I won't go through all the verses, but there are various verses throughout those first five books of Moses um, and going into Joshua that shows those people in the land, they were exceptionally wicked. Um, they were worthy of God's judgment. God was just using the Israelites to carry out that judgment against them. Um, so, yes. And doesn't that scripture also say that God was patient and waited for them to fill the measure? Yeah, there, there is a scripture that talked about the fill, filling their measure of judgment. Right, right. Yeah, so I mean the, the people, um, the people of, of that land uh, were wicked people. They were rebellious. Um, they were sinful. Yeah. yeah Pastor, uh, the, the people of the land... Uh, if you'll recall, when they when they sent the spies in to see Rahab the harlot, she told them how the people's hearts had melted. Yeah. Those people understood that this land had been promised to Israel, mm -hmm. and they were basically squatters on Israel's land. Yeah. And they they said, when we heard about how God protected you out of Egypt through the forty years in the desert, our hearts melted within us. Yeah. And and that's that's exactly the way it was. And those people. Should not have even been there. Yeah, yeah, and and there there were um, people like, um, for instance, like the Edomites um, that you know when when Israel came out, they, the Edomites, uh, which uh, is part of the line of Abraham, but not part of that chosen line. Um, you know, they didn't cooperate. They, they didn't. Want... Uh, the first the first battles took place on the east side of the Jordan. Yeah, and and uh, Sion of uh, Sion was mm -hmm. taken, and and then Og of Basham was taken. 
And those battles were led by Moses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so yeah, it was. Um, it was. Moses never crossed over the Jordan. That's where the dividing line was. It was crossing over the Jordan. You're right. So the initial battles, and that's in the book of Moses. Um, that's, uh, that's part of what Moses recounts in Deuteronomy, um, is, is some of those battles. It's just when they come to the Jordan, that's, that's when they stop. And Joshua is the one that leads them um, across the Jordan. Moses desperately wanted to go across and be in that promised land, and, and God would not, uh, would not permit him. Um, so Joshua is about the conquest, and so we have a record of that conquest. The Israelites did not carry that conquest all the way through. Um, and in fact, at the end of, you know, what's interesting, at the end of the book of Joshua, the last chapter is chapter 24. We're not going to read through it, but chapter 24, Joshua gives them a similar warning to what Moses gave them at the end of Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, you will not obey God. Um, you're going to end up failing and you're going to end up getting scattered. And then Joshua ends up warning them that, look, you cannot, you're not going to obey God. And they're like, no, we can, we will obey God. And Joshua tells them twice, then put away, put away the idols, you know, put away the gods of your fathers that you've been carrying from even way back from, from Egypt. Um, and, and, uh, they, they never said they would put them away. They just said, we will, we'll obey the Lord. Um, so the end of, by the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua, um, is, is, coming to the end of his life as well. They've conquered the land, but they haven't conquered it completely. And then following that is the book of Judges. So now they're in the promised land. And like I said, the idea was that they were to dwell in the promised land forever. But the idea would be that they would obey the Mosaic law. They would obey the Mosaic law. Well, what happens in Judges? And, and the period of Judges um, stretches about 400 years as well. So in the book of Judges, we have a period of 400 years. And during that period of Judges, um, you really didn't have any prophets, and, and certainly you didn't have kings. All right, there were no kings. It was the idea that the people said, hey, we can obey the law. Okay, now go and show us that you can obey the law. And what the book of Judges shows is that they can't obey the law. In fact, generation after generation, they get worse. They get more and more disobedient. The, 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 the next generation is worse than the prior generation until you get to the last generation one of the last generations detailed in Judges, um, you, you, have, um, you have people in Israel committing the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yeah. So Sodom, they're committing the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, and one of the tribes, which was the per tribe of Benjamin, um, was on the brink of extinction. Um, civil war, they were about to declare civil war and, uh, and, and take uh, Benjamin all the way to, to extinction um, in the book of Judges. And so Judges is a very dark period in Israel's history. And it's probably worth looking um, at the very end of the book of Judges. Look at the very end, chapter 21. Chapter, the very last verse of the very last chapter in the book of Judges, this is a fitting summary of what their problem was. All right, In um, chapter 21, verse 25, Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you're obeying the Mosaic law, you shouldn't be doing what's right in your own eyes, right? There's a difference between doing what's right in your own eyes versus being obedient to what God says. And, and they knew that they were called to obey God, but rather they were not only disobeying God, but each one was just going in their own direction, which is why you had um, civil war, you had um, the, the, the sin, and you had this de-escalation, this um, de-evolution, I would say, this, uh, this, this kind of um, this moral spiral downward, this uh, trajectory downward that, that happened with Israel. Um, so that, that's a very dark period. Um, and that leads into the next book, which is 1 Samuel. 
So in 1 Samuel, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, we're still in the, that period of the judges. Um, we're still in that period of the judges. And, and by the way, sorry, the next book is actually Ruth, because Ruth actually takes, um, takes place during that time of judges as well. Um, but, but the amazing thing about Ruth, and Ruth is, is this kind of this short story, four chapters, um, and, and it talks about how um, this family left Israel, which they shouldn't have done. They left Israel to go dwell um, outside. Um, and they ended up, uh, you know, the two sons of Naomi ended up taking um, Canaanite uh, wives, which they shouldn't have done. I mean, there's all kinds of things wrong with this picture, right? And, uh, and, and God ends up striking down the, the two sons. And then the, the, of the two wives, um, Naomi, um, the, the wife, looks at the two daughter-in-laws and says, you know what? Um, go back to your homeland. Um, you're not going to, you know, you don't have your husband and, and, and there's nothing I can offer you. Just go ahead and go back to your homeland. Well, one of them says, okay, I'm gone. See ya. Um, the other one, Ruth, says, no, I'm staying with you. And uh, Ruth ends up going back uh, with Naomi back into the promised land. And we have this story of redemption where, um, you know, Naomi sends Ruth out to gather, um, gather grain. And then by the providence of God, where did she gather grain? She gathers grain at the field of Boaz. Yeah. I always find it interesting how somehow Ruth had become a believer because when... Naomi says, go back. She's like, no, your people will right. be my people. Your God will be my God. Yeah. Somehow she had come to faith and understood. Who yeah. Really yeah. Was. And I, I think that's a supernatural work of God in her heart. Um, to serve Naomi and to serve um, whatever God that Naomi had worshipped. Even despite, think about this, even despite the fact that Naomi really turned her back on Israel in leaving with her husband. Um, you know, then, then she goes back and sends Ruth out into the field to gather grain because they're poor. And, and they just, she just happens to be gathering grain from Boaz, who's really the redeemer of, um, of, of her husband that passed away. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you know, by the end of the book, um, Ruth and, and Boaz have children. And, uh, and you, when you look at the line that they have, well, the Messiah is going to come out of that line. And in fact, I mean, it's such a beautiful story. Um, You even go back to Genesis and that chapter about uh, Judah and Tamar. Um, Judah ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, not knowing, thinking that she was a temple prostitute. Slept with his daughter-in-law, they had a child, and when he found out that she um, she was pregnant, he was about to have her stoned until he discovered that he's the one that impregnated her. And then he backed off and said, okay, she's more righteous than I, because he had promised her, he had promised her a, a husband and never delivered on that. Um, and, um, and, and really the messianic line, the line of Jesus Christ actually started from, from that, that act between Judah and Tamar. So one of their children, um, was, a, was, a, a man by the name of Perez. And then several generations down from Perez is Boaz. And then Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. And then from, from Boaz and Ruth, in fact, you look at the end of Ruth, Ruth chapter four, Starting in uh, verse uh, chapter four, verse eighteen, and this is, folks, this is the blessed grace of God that during the period of Judges, when Israel was spiraling downwards, when they were continuing to rebel, God was still working out His plan. He was actually using the disobedience of this family to sow the seeds of the Messiah, to continue forth the seeds of the Messiah. I mean, that, that's the, the, the messianic line. I mean, it's amazing. Um, chapter 4, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. So Perez was actually one of the sons born from Judah and Tamar. Um, now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab, verse 20. To Aminadab was born Nashon, and Nashon, Salmon, and Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. 
and to Obed Jesse and to Jesse David. Um, so we see from the book of end of the book of Ruth that what happens actually ends up leading to the line of David. Yeah. It's also in Matthew chapter one. Yeah, yeah. Matthew one will detail the entire. So it's, yeah, it's the entire messianic New line. Testament, New Testament. Yeah, there's a perfect match. There's a perfect match. And it's amazing when you think about these books, you know, these things happening and these books being written. Only God can create events like this, right? Out of, the, out, of, out of Israel's greatest disobedience, when all they deserved was curses from the law, God was making sure that he was pushing forward the messianic line. Um, and uh, it's still in the book, it's still, we're, it's still in this period, this dark period of Judges, when the, when the events of 1 Samuel begin. Hannah, right? The, um, the, the, this lady Hannah goes before the Lord and, and is desperately crying out for a son. Um, she desperately cries out for a son. Um, God gives her a son. She promises, you give me a son and I will devote him to you. And so she gets a son. She devotes him to, to the Lord. And, and who is that son? That son is the prophet Samuel, the uh, uh, prophet and the last judge. So really, when we think about the period of the judges, the period of judges was closed with Samuel. Samuel would have been the last judge. Um, and he really ushers in a new period because it would be through Samuel that they would, um, they would appoint their first king, right? But the first king, I mean, it, it, first Samuel, we get the appointment of the first king who is who? who? Saul, right. And, um, and, and the nation of Israel, they, they wanted a king, but their motivations were all wrong. Um, they wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the rest of the nations. You know, they didn't go to God and say, well, will you appoint um, a king after your own heart to, to, um, to, to help shepherd us? You know, but, but rather they wanted um, a king to be like the rest of the nation. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king. I'll give you the king that, that you want. Yeah. Is that why Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin? Is yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, up until now, and I haven't really talked about this, but it was made clear at the end of Genesis um, that the kingship line would come from Judah. Yeah. Right. right. So it's interesting that the first king chosen is not from Judah. It's from, it's from Benjamin. Right. It's, um, it, it's Saul. Which, interesting, the prophet, uh, I'm sorry, the apostle Paul was originally named Saul, and he's also from the pro- tribe of Benjamin. So that's interesting, yeah. Well, it's because, I mean, I, mean I, I remember reading that, and they just, they, they just kept whining and crying, and give us a thing, and give us a thing, and yeah. give us a thing. Fine, take him! Yeah. And then he ends up being like, oh, oh this guy's not really what we want. That's right, that's right. But that's the MO, I mean, this is what these people were like, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, Samuel, um, you know, Samuel would be very important because he, he's serving as the position of prophet um, and priest and judge. I mean, he's serving multiple positions here, um, and he's being used to choose not only that, uh, that first king, which is Saul, which was not the, not the king really God wanted, but he would use Samuel to select David, right? And so you see that in the book of First Samuel also, that, that he also selects David. So once Saul, it, once it's obvious that Saul is a failure, um, he says, okay, now, now you're going to choose a king that's after my own heart. And uh, it's in, right here in the book of 1 um, Samuel that he also chooses David. And, and really for the, first, the, end, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is this coexistence between David and Saul. Because there's this tension between them. Where Saul knows that David is, is the next in line and, and there's jealousy and there's anger. And, and at various times Saul tries to kill David. Um, and, and what we see from David is that David refuses to kill Saul. right? Recognizing that that was the Lord's anointed. Um, and uh, you get to the end of the book of 1 Samuel. By the end of the book of 1 Samuel, that's when Saul is killed. And 2 Samuel begins with, okay, now this is David's reign. Now David begins his reign um, in 2 Samuel. Um, yes? I think it's noteworthy uh, to remember, too, as we look at this, uh, this history. Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, 
A number of uh, Bible critics say that uh, the Israelites were guilty of genocide. Yeah, yeah. But there are four women named in the genealogy of That's Jesus right. other than Mary. Yeah. Every one of those four is a Gentile. Yeah. Every one of those four had no business being in the Messianic right. line except for the grace of God. Yeah. And I, all through the Old Testament, we see the grace of God, the yes. grace of God yes. over and over. That's right. Repeated. That's and right. I, it's, it's made note of in Matthew. I, and that just thrills my yeah. heart. Yeah. Because uh, we are all... Uh, deserving of condemnation. Yeah, absolutely. But God's grace shines yeah. through. Yes. And it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you, you know, the, the messianic line, if you think about it, it starts with, um, with, with this egregious sin between Judah and Tamar. Um, and it ends up um, including Rahab. You mentioned Rahab. Rahab's in that line. Um, Boaz is, in, um, Boaz Ruth is in that line. You, you know, so I mean, the messianic yeah, line. Yeah, and Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't even name her. She who had been the wife of Uriah. Yeah, yeah. right. It's almost like he can't bear to write down her name. Yeah. But she's in there. That's right, that's right. And, um, and, and really, the only reason why Bathsheba um, is in that line is because of David's sin, right? right. Um, David, uh, David took Bathsheba. He ended up uh, sending Uriah to his death into the front lines. By the way, that's in 2 Samuel. So you get into 2 Samuel, you have, you have David's reign, which starts off looking really good, but he has that, that period of time that ends up um, really kind of being a scar to the rest of his uh, testimony. Um, you know, and, and the question is often asked of David, you know, how can he be considered a man after God's own heart um, when he actually committed adultery, um, he murdered um, the, the, the husband of Bathsheba, you know, and all that, and, and uh, really it shows the grace of God as well. You know, because what we have in um, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, 32 and 51 are the confession of David um, to God uh, over his sin. And what we see in both of those uh, Psalms is that um, David really repented. You know, sometimes people repent, and from the outside you can't tell if it's real repentance or not. You, you can't tell if someone is sorry because they got caught or are they sorry because they recognize the gravity of their sin. You really can't tell from the outside. Um, but uh, what we have in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and the way God treated him afterwards is that it was real repentance. Um, David had truly repented. And, and I think you see that in his life following that um, event. I mean, he had a number of concubines. He put them away. Um, he, he never slept with his concubines again after that. Um, but he ended up paying the, um, the, the consequences. He ended up living out the consequences of that sin for the rest of his life. Um, God told David, because of this sin, the sword will not leave from your house. I mean, you will see violence, in other words, in your house for the rest of your life. And he did. You know, people like Absalom and, and people like that, he, he uh, was running for, for his life uh, from, from people that uh, were his sons, right? Um, so so you, you had uh, th this story in, in 2 Samuel, really, of, of kind of the, the highs and lows of, of, um, of King David. And it's in 2 Samuel that you have the great Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's when God promises uh, Samuel that one of your sons I will raise up to reign in the kingdom forever. Yeah. Promises David. Yeah, pro sorry, promises David. Who did I say? Samuel. Sorry. In Samuel, he promised David. Second Samuel, he promised David. Yeah, I, I need to watch the names I say. So in the book of Second Samuel, he promises David um, that he will raise up a, a son after him to reign in the kingdom forever. And uh, right also in the... Um, you know, so the, the book of 2 Samuel continues on, um, really covers the life of David. When you get to the end of 2 Samuel, um, David, uh, David's at the end of his life. And that leads into 1 Kings. 
First Kings, now you get the, the, the reign starting with Solomon, David's son. And this Davidic promise that had been given to David, um, that the promise that one of his kings would reign in the kingdom forever, um, a lot of people thought it was Solomon. Because Solomon, I tell you what, politically, Israel enjoyed its greatest success under Solomon. It's, its greatest heights of, of achievement under Solomon. But we also saw that Solomon collected for himself wives from um, many nations, um, from nations that he wasn't supposed to collect wives from. And, uh, and, and the book of 1 Kings is very clear that the effect that these women had on him is that they turned his heart away from the Lord. And they brought in all these foreign gods um, into the land. And, uh, and so initially, when, when it looked like Solomon was the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant, um, then you have this massive downfall of Solomon, you know, where he's judged that the kingdom is split. So here's the thing. Because of Solomon's sin, God ended up telling Solomon, look, because of what you've done, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. Um, but because of the promise I made to your father, you will still be a king, but you're only going to be a king over Judah. Okay, so Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You're only going to be king over Judah, which is in the southern parts. The rest of um, Israel um, is going to be taken away from, from your son. Um, so that happens um, with um, Solomon's son, um, Rehoboam. It was yeah. Rehoboam? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it happened with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. That's um, also in the, um, I want to say that's also in the book of First Kings. And then really from there, from the, from the book of First Kings to the end of Second Kings, you just have this lineage of kings, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, it's always the house of David. So it never ceases to be the house of David. All the kings in the south, in Judah, it's always someone from the house of David. Whereas in the north, it ends up being um, a lot of turnover. You, you know, there's the, no family reigns for more than a few generations before another one conquers it. Didn't Benjamin also go with Judah? Yeah, Benjamin was also with Judah. Levi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's, that is interesting. That is interesting. And Levi didn't have their own land, but the Levites served in the temple, which was in Judah. Um, so, yeah, you really had, um, you had Judah. You, know, you had the tribe of Judah. You had the, most of the tribe of Levi and, uh, and the tribe of Benjamin um, down south and everyone else uh, really up north. Um, so, I think that's because David had promised that he would, um, when Saul. That's, that's an interesting question. I'd never considered that. You're right. To Jonathan. He made that promise to, to Saul and to Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. That's, that. yeah, that, that could very well be. That could very well be. It was a very small tribe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? Um, you know, when, Saul, when, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about his credentials, he makes sure to mention that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, so, so there, there's a certain, there, there's certain something there historically when Paul says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, meaning this, this tribe that has survived um, so much uh, turmoil in the past. You know, I believe that's, uh, that's why he references it. Um, specifically, but that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it, it could be, could be, but yeah. So that, that because of the sins of Solomon, now you have a split of the kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Yep. I was just thinking about going back to the original twelve tribes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Benjamin and Joseph. Yeah. Yes. So could that also be part of? Well, it, it, it doesn't say that anywhere. So, I mean, um, it, it's possible. It, it doesn't say that that's the reason. In fact, I, I don't think it provides any reason as to why Benjamin um, was included in that. Mm -hmm. um, and also keep in mind, too, that um, 
Joseph is, is represented by two tribes. He ends up becoming two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, right? And, and Ephraim ends up being where the, the king in the northern kingdom ends up inhabiting. Um, so you, you really, First and Second Kings is about this history of all the kings that are revolving. And, and what's amazing is that, as I said, in the northern kingdom, you have constant turnover. You know, so, I mean, there's no family that reigns in the northern kingdom for more than a few generations before someone else takes over. But in the south, it's always David. I mean, that's, that's God's faithfulness to the house of David. And what is he doing? He's preserving the messianic line. Because if he allows the house of David to be over, overcome, the, house of, you know, the Davidic line could be destroyed. Right? In the southern kingdom, you, you, you run into this, and he did that which was right in the eyes of his father, or he did evil. Yeah. And, and so there's righteous and unrighteous kings. Right. But in the northern kingdom, I think... Yeah, it's all bad. It's all bad. All yeah, it's all bad. Yeah, you, you know, each king, when you read through um, First and Second Kings... Each king is either compared to a bad king or a good king. They're either described as someone who walked like David or someone who uh, walked like um, um, Ahaz or, or someone like that, yeah. Um, and I think initially it's um, Jeroboam. I think Jeroboam is the negative comparison. I could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, it's a, so it's either compared to, to one or the other. And even in the South, for the most part, they're bad kings. There's a few good ones along the way. You know, people like um, like uh, uh, Josiah and um, Hezekiah, right, and, and a few others um, like that are considered uh, good kings. But for the most part, they're bad kings. But, but here's what's significant about this. Because as we're seeing the nation of Israel, um, when the kingdoms get split, we, we see um, what happened during the time of Judges. Remember when I said they were spiraling downwards morally under the time of Judges? Well, that ends up happening in both kingdoms um, following that split. That morally, they both just decay and they spiral downwards. So despite having kings, they, they are sinful. And so what we're seeing is that the Mosaic Covenant is not being upheld. The Mosaic Covenant is not being upheld by the nation of Israel, either in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. It's both being disobeyed. Um, so the question is, okay, well, God had promised Abraham that his people um, would be in, in the promised land forever. All right. Um, but the Mosaic Covenant said that if you continue to disobey, you're going to be exiled. So we have tension here. Okay, wait a second. I thought the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, but the Mosaic covenant is conditional. You see what I'm saying? See, the Abrahamic covenant promised that they would have their land forever. The Mosaic covenant said it's conditional on your, um, on your obedience or disobedience. Well, they disobeyed. They disobeyed to the point that they got exiled. Um, but then there's this Davidic promise that, that there would be a king that would reign forever. And uh, what they don't realize um, that we know now, now that we have all of that, that has happened, is, is we start to realize that that king um, has come, and the first time he came, in order to fulfill the covenant that Israel could not fulfill. Bring it to an end. And, and uh, it's during the time of uh, Jeremiah. So, you know, this, this time of First and Second Kings, when, when, the, when the kingdom is split into these two kingdoms, that's when you have the rise of so many prophets. I mean, there are prophets uh, that, that go back to Samuel um, and uh, the time of David and whatnot. But you have numerous prophets, especially during the times of, of, the, um, of the kings in First and Second Kings. And, and a lot of the writings of the prophets, we have all the major prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, uh, which were the much smaller books going from Hosea all the way out to Malachi. They all wrote during those divided kingdom years. So it's after the kingdom is divided. That's where we have all the prophetic writings of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, and really what, you're, what you get in those books, all the prophetic books, which is like the rest, almost the rest of the Old Testament, you get um, really from their vantage point um, how God used them to try to call the nation to repentance, essentially, mm -hmm. to try to call them to turn. Um, in fact, um, 
Turn with me to Jeremiah 25. You know, when the, um, when the kingdoms were exiled, and uh, remember I told you there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom was kicked out first. Okay, the northern kingdom was kicked out first, and you'll, you'll, see, that, uh, you'll, you'll see that detailed in 2 Kings. And then the southern kingdom was kicked out later. The northern kingdom was kicked out in um, 722 BC. Um, it was exiled by Assyria, and mostly they were scattered and, and destroyed. And then the southern kingdom... Um, God gave them an extra chance to repent, and they didn't. And so they, they were um, exiled in three stages. The final stage of their exile was 586 B.C. Um, so 586 B.C., they, they were exiled by the Babylonians, um, and, uh, and, and they're kicked out of the Promised Land. But the last prophet, the last major prophet that uh, was in Judah when they were exiled is Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is the last one. So when you read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a painful book to read. Because Jeremiah, again, over and over again, he's begging, he's pleading, he's calling for them to repent, and they wouldn't do it. And this is just an example, and this is practically about halfway through his ministry that we're going to read here. Jeremiah 25, verse 3. Jeremiah 25, verse 3. This is what he says to them. Um, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent you all of his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, from the evil of your deeds, and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Verse 7, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And that's just barely halfway through Jeremiah's ministry, and they, they never did improve from there. Um, so we, we see in the book of Jeremiah, they continue to um, rebel against him, and they're sent out. And it's in Jeremiah 31, that's when we get the promise of the new covenant, um, the promise of the new covenant. And, and um, I'll probably end here, but Jeremiah 31, 31. You know, as I mentioned you know, God had promised Abraham all these blessings, and it was unconditional. The blessings of Abraham were unconditional. But the Mosaic Covenant made it conditional, that you obey, you'll be blessed, so you disobey, you'll be cursed. Um, and, and when it becomes clear that Israel would not obey, well, how is it that the Abrahamic Covenant would be fulfilled? Because the Abrahamic Covenant is, is unconditional. You will absolutely be blessed. All the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. You know, how, how is it going to be possible when the Mosaic Covenant... Um, showed that the Israelites were to be cursed through all of this. Well, there's a new covenant. Um, verse 31, chapter 31, verse 31. The Lord says this, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. So verse 32 is a very clear reference to the Mosaic Covenant. And so he's saying this new covenant is not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, they broke. The implication is that this new covenant cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. And how is it that God can simply just replace an old covenant with a new covenant? Well, he can do that through the coming king who's going to sacrifice himself. Because when Jesus Christ comes, he ends up being the perfect fulfillment of the old covenant. And from him, the old covenant comes to an end. 
he establishes the new covenant. And that's how the Abrahamic covenant can be unconditional because he, he is going to bring it about through the new covenant that's brought about by Jesus Christ. But at, at this point, when we see all the Israelites getting exiled, um, it's clear that Solomon was not the promised king. And so um, they, they end up getting exiled for a period of time. Some of them end up coming back to Israel. That, that's, that's what you start getting at the, the last few books of the Old Testament. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah provides the narrative account of them coming back and rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls. And, and you have um, some of the uh, later prophets like Malachi and Haggai, um, people like um, them that are, that are talking about what's happening when they come back. But when you read the book of Malachi, you know, they've, they've been exiled. Now they've come back. And the book of Malachi just goes to show that nothing has changed. Their heart is still the same. Nehemiah shows the same thing. Nothing has changed. They're, they're, they're still the same. In fact, when you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is painful too because Nehemiah, so many times he's praying for the people. He's praying for the people. He's praying for the people. And at the very end, he's praying to God, just saying, God, just remember me. Remember what I've done um, because the rest of Israel is not, is not obeying. Um, so it, we, we get to the end, and, and that's why Malachi, the very end, and we, this is worth looking at. Go to Malachi. Malachi, very last chapter. That would be Malachi 4. Malachi 4. And if you were to read through the entire book of Malachi, they, they're just... They haven't changed. They're, they're still just as hard-hearted as, as ever. And at the very end of Book of Malachi, this is the end of the Old Testament. What does he say in chapter 4, verse 4? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And after that, over 400 years of silence, nothing more. And then what do you have? You have the coming of John the Baptist. And everyone's rushing to him and they know finally a prophet has come. And he ends up being the forerunner to the Messiah who ends up bringing all these covenants together. The Abrahamic promise, the Mosaic law gets fulfilled by him, the Davidic covenant obviously fulfilled by him. He ends up um, inaugurating the new covenant and the blessings of Abraham is realized through Jesus Christ and even today as we share the gospel. And so hopefully that, that gives you, um, for if, if um, you know, you've been wrestling with the Old Testament, trying to understand its structure, that's, that's really kind of a, a brief overview as much as possible in an hour in terms of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. you know, you have the uh, commandment in the Exodus about you can't break a bone in the, in the Passover land. Yeah. And in the New Testament, it specifically says... That Jesus, not a bone in his body. Yeah. And he's the perfect Passover. Yeah, there, there's so many rich ways that the Old Testament points to the New Testament, that the Old Testament points to Christ. And that Passover lamb, I mean, that's, we can spend an hour just talking about that. Um, really, you know, that, uh, that the, the institution of the Passover, you know, how God did that before the 10th plague. I mean, it's amazing. That's, the Passover is observed even today amongst Jews. That, that's one of their most important observances throughout the years, the Passover. And it's meant to remind them that God delivered them from Egypt um, with the blood of a perfect lamb that, um, that spared them uh, from the destroyer. Yeah, and, uh, and they, they were to remember that always. And that was supposed to point them forward to the, to the Christ. And that's when John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world away. Was there a question in the back? Yeah. Uh, you just, uh, in Malachi chapter 4, 
No, that's um, that's in reference to John the Pro- John the Baptist, who ends up being the forerunner. Yeah, well, um, the um, the transfiguration account. Um, if you go to uh, Matthew, and I'll just say Matthew 17, just read through Matthew 17. So Matthew 17 is the transfiguration account. Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God shining through his face. And then they come down off the mountain and uh, the disciples actually ask Jesus Christ about Elijah. Because they saw Elijah up there on the mountain, standing side, standing right next to Moses. And they asked uh, Moses, why do they say that Elijah will come first? And then Moses, and then um, Jesus Christ actually he makes reference to this verse that we just read. He says, yeah, Elijah does come first, but I'm telling you, Elijah already came. And then they understood that to be John the Baptist. And, and the book of Luke, if you read the book of Luke, um, the book of Luke says that um, John the Baptist um, came with the spirit of Elijah. Um, so Elijah the prophet here is symbolically pointing to the work of John the Baptist. All right. All right any other questions? Was this helpful? All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, close out in prayer and uh, enjoy the rest of the night.